So in, in 1984, the Nike Shoe Company, they partnered with a promising rookie basketball player fresh out of college. Not many people had heard about him. His name was Michael Jordan. Perhaps you've heard about him. Um, and uh, they figured that if people saw Michael Jordan playing basketball with Nike shoes, then people would then go out and buy Nike shoes. That was kind of their, their bet. If people saw this incredible basketball player, it would change the way they, they thought about buying shoes. Well, prior to Michael Jordan, people who wanted a good basketball shoe didn't think of Nike. Nike was kind of known as a, a shoe company that made track shoes. Um, if, if someone prior to Michael Jordan, if someone wanted to have a basketball shoe, they'd, th they'd think about Converse. Perhaps those of you who uh, lived a little bit, you know, you remember the Converse shoes, or they would look to an Adidas shoe or something like that. But when people saw Michael Jordan soar through the air and practically defy gravity, wearing his signature shoes, when they saw him score almost at will with his special shoes on his feet, they couldn't help but wonder if his greatness as a basketball player had something to do with his shoes. In a famous advertisement uh, with the six foot six Michael Jordan and the five foot six Spike Lee, Michael Jordan's ability to play the game of basketball is questioned. The diminutive Spike Lee just cannot understand how it would be possible for someone to jump that high, for someone to be able to move with such grace, for someone to be so dominant out on the court. He had to have some kind of special advantage. And Spike Lee famously concludes that it's got to be the shoes. <laughs> it's got to be the shoes. Well, of course it wasn't the shoes. <laughs> But there is a reason that after these advertisement campaigns and after Michael Jordan has his Air Jordans and is playing amazing games of basketball and everyone's watching him, there's a reason all these people go out and start buying Air Jordans. There's a reason that today the Air Jordan brand is worth billions of dollars. People are changed by what they see. When I was in high school, Everyone who touched a basketball wanted to be like Mike. And even if they couldn't dunk or they couldn't imitate his signature moves, there was a good chance that whenever they laced up their Air Jordan high tops, they felt some kind of connection with greatness. Like, just maybe this is going to make me an amazing person in some way. I, for one, felt that connection. But even though I had a pair of Air Jordans, and I tried, to, tried my best to be like Mike. Regrettably, even though Michael Jordan is an amazing basketball player, he was not good enough to make me a good basketball player. I had his shoes on my feet, but it didn't change my ability to play. Well, just like a pair of shoes cannot change a person's athletic ability, your religion cannot change your character. We can look at Jesus' life and be inspired to imitate him. Wow, it's so incredible how Jesus lived. How did he do it? But no matter how much we learn about Jesus, no matter how much we try to act 
like Jesus. The reality is, is you and I don't have what it takes to make ourselves like Jesus. We can't do it. If you've tried to change your character to be more loving, more patient, more gracious, more like Jesus, and you have failed, then you may think that becoming like Jesus is just impossible for you. Maybe for someone else, but for you, perhaps you can toy with the idea that maybe I'm just never going to be like Jesus. I've tried. But thankfully today, we're going we're gonna to look at a teaching from the Bible. There's a teaching from the Bible that, that shows us how character change is possible and how anyone, no matter how spiritually handicapped we might be, can actually become more and more like Jesus. Uh, this is the title of the message, Look to Change. And before we get into the teaching from the Bible, I'd like to just pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would open our hearts, that we would see Jesus in a new and transformative way. We give you permission to remove the distractions, to remove the barriers, to remove the things that prevent us from seeing. We want to live like Jesus. We want to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 18. And I'd just like to comment that as, as you're going there to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, that the author of this letter and of these words that we're about to read knew something about change. Before he met Jesus, the Apostle Paul was the epitome of an intolerant person. Paul was not tolerant of other people believing differently than him. He was so zealous for his Jewish beliefs that he used intimidation and he used physical force to try and change people. He dragged them from their homes. He threatened them with imprisonment and even death just because they believed differently than he did. They, they, they were followers of Jesus. And he didn't just do this when he happened to come across someone who was a Christian. He actively sought out people who believed differently than he did. He was just completely intolerant to anyone having a different religious opinion, a different religious view than himself. But one day, Paul completely changed. And what completely changed Paul was that he saw Jesus. And what he saw when he saw Jesus radically transformed his life. He went from being filled with hate to being filled with love. In fact, he even went to the, to the extent that he loved people and wanted to give his life to people who hated him. It's a, it's a complete change. A hateful person going to, to the place where he's willing to lay down his life for those who did not like him. Now, if character change could have been accomplished for Paul by merely doing religion— if, if character change could have been accomplished for him by, um, by learning about the Bible, then Paul should have experienced character change prior to, meeting to Jesus, prior to meeting Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Bible. He followed all of these religious practices, but he was not changed. He was not changed until he saw Jesus in a new way. He describes this new way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Please read it with me um, silently as I, as I read it. <laughs> um, and we all, 
who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. It's a process, ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The change that Paul is talking about here is not merely an external change. It's not just on the exterior. The word translated here, transformed, this word here in our English Bibles, transformed, actually, it literally means a change to the inward reality of the person. It's not talking about an exterior change. Yes, that's implied. That, that will happen. There'll, there'll be some changes in, in how we appear and how we behave and the things that we say and the things that people see us do. But the transformation that he's talking about here is an inner change. It's an inner transformation. It's a change in the way we think. It's a change in our impulses. It's a change in our feelings. And if you've taken any inventory on your thoughts and your feelings and your impulses, those are things that we can't really change. Not on our own. Paul is describing an internal change that only God is able to, to do. Now, we, we don't need God to try and be good people. We don't need God to pretend to be loving towards someone that's driving us crazy and we really don't like. We don't need God to pretend. We can pretend. People are capable of putting on a good front without God being involved. But to be changed on the inside in the way we think, the way we feel, our impulses, our affections, these, these things to be changed, that's, that's something that only God can do. And yet this change that only God can do cannot happen without our cooperation. Paul tells us what our cooperation is in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He describes our part in this transformation when he says that we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Contemplation of the Lord's glory is our cooperation in this process. It's to soak it in. It's to let it affect us. It's to allow it to come into our minds. It's, it's to, to cherish it in our thinking. This is what contemplating the Lord's glory is all about. And here, when Paul says, we all with unveiled faces, what he's doing there is he's referring to an Old Testament story about Moses, about Moses giving God's law to the people of Israel. After spending 40 days on the top of Mount Sinai in the presence of God, Moses returned with the Ten Commandments, and he, he returned with the instructions given to him by God. And as he comes down and he approaches the people, he looks at the people and he notices that the people are looking at him a little bit strange. They're looking at him, and, and he realizes that they're, they're kind of shielding their faces a little bit. They're having a hard time looking at Moses' face. Exodus 34, verse 30 tells us why they were having a difficult time. It says that his face was radiant, and they, the people, were afraid to come near him. Having spent time in the glorious presence of God, Moses' face is now shining. He's transformed. He's changed. His face is radiant. So much so that people are having a hard time looking at him. And what he had to do for people to feel comfortable being around him was Moses had to put a veil over his face so that people could look at him. His face was veiled. This story, this Old Testament story, demonstrates the power of contemplating the glory of God. Now, before this experience where Moses' face was radiant, was shining, 
Moses had multiple experiences of communicating with God. If you'll remember, prior to this, when he was a shepherd, God appeared to him in a burning bush, and God spoke to Moses. They had a conversation. But after that conversation, the Bible does not say that Moses' face was radiant. God spoke to Moses, and he gave him instructions as to what to do to, to go and, and talk to Pharaoh and, and, and how, to, how the plagues were going to play out in Egypt. Moses had these communications with God, but after those communications, his face was not radiant. God told Moses how to get through the Red Sea. God told Moses how, to, how he was going to provide food and water for the people in the desert. But after these communications, the Bible does not say that his face was radiant. So what is unique about this interaction? What was it about this communication with God on the top of Mount Sinai that made Moses' face radiant this time? Why, why was it so different this time? What caused his face to be radiant? In Exodus 33, verse 18, the Bible tells us that Moses made a unique request of God. He says, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, okay, come up on Mount Sinai. And what I'm going to do is this. You can't look at my face. It'll be too much. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in a, in a cleft. There's, there's going to be a separation in the rock up there. And I'm going to put you there. And I'm going to put my hand over you. And then I'm going to pass by. And as I'm passing by, you're not going to see my face. But as I pass by, you're going to see my back. And I'm going to proclaim my goodness to you. And this is what happened. God passes by. God proclaims his goodness to Moses. God gave Moses a special revelation of his goodness. And when Moses saw this, when he first had a firsthand experience with God, when he was exposed to the goodness of God, he was changed and his face shone. Now, it's significant to note that God revealed, he, he gave Moses this special revelation of his goodness, and really to the people of Israel, gave this special revelation of goodness to them after they were unfaithful. It wasn't before. It was after they chose to turn their backs on, on God and worship the golden calf. When all that happened and Moses came down with the first set of the, the tablets of stone, broke them on the ground to signify what the people of Israel had done. They'd broken their covenant with God. They had promised to be faithful to God. And a few weeks later after that promise, they were worshiping a golden calf. They proved themselves unfaithful. And so God had every right to abandon Israel at this point. I mean, they turned their backs on him. But even though they chose to do this, God did not give them what they deserved. He didn't leave them. Instead, God came close to his people, and he revealed his goodness to them. Glorious goodness of God. God's glory is his good character. It's his goodness that's his glory. And Paul is telling us that the privilege of looking into God's glorious goodness, into his character, is no longer restricted to a select few. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we all, listen to the inclusive language that's there, we all with unveiled faces get to contemplate the Lord's glory. 
when he says that we all contemplate the Lord's glory, he's talking about looking to Jesus. Prior to Jesus, people could not clearly see the goodness of God. They couldn't see his, his glorious goodness. It was veiled to them, as it were, veiled to the Jews. But when Jesus came, Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians 3 is that when Jesus came, he removed the veil. He removed that which stood in the way of people being transformed by the glorious revelation of God's goodness because we see it now in the person of Jesus. Just like Moses had the chance to behold God's glory, we now behold God's glory in Jesus. And when we, like Moses, contemplate the goodness of God in the life of Christ, it has a transformative power in the way we live. We're changed with ever-increasing glory. This is how people, sinful people, people with character flaws, this is how we become like Jesus. It's by looking to him to change us. Of course, anyone can look. It doesn't take any special skill to look at something. We can look at all kinds of things without any special skill. But not everyone who looks to Jesus is transformed by Jesus. There's a significant difference between looking to Jesus as our example and looking to be changed by Jesus' example. The big difference there. For many, the concept of following Jesus can be very frustrating. If you've had conversations with other people, perhaps other Christians, perhaps people who have tried Christianity say, oh, forget it. It's, it's a frustrating experience for many people. Because people have learned about Jesus, they've looked at his example, and they've tried their best to be like Jesus. But no matter how hard they've tried, their character hasn't changed. Because merely trying to follow Jesus, merely trying to follow his example is, is like trying to follow the example of a professional basketball pair, player. It's like, it's like trying, to, trying to copy the athletic ability of Michael Jordan, or, or you can watch every moment of the NBA finals and and, and you might be very inspired as you watch these incredible athletes do these amazing physical feats of athleticism. But you can watch all of these things, and still, that's not going to change you. It's not going to make you a professional basketball player. Looking at Jesus' example is not enough to change us. But something powerful happens when we move beyond looking to Jesus as merely our example. Okay, he's out there being loving and patient and kind, and I'm going to try to be that way. Something powerful happens when we, when we transition from just looking to Jesus as our example and looking to be changed by Jesus' example. Powerful transformation takes place. During what we refer to in the Bible as the Last Supper, where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. The disciples had a chance to see Jesus serve in a way that was very unique. It was, it was the most humble of ways that they saw Jesus serve on that evening. The hygienic custom of the day required that they wash feet before they eat. And at this Passover feast, the disciples would have been reclining on, on their side, on the ground, on pillows, and their feet would have all been extended out away from a, a low table where they would take the food and, and eat. And so in this position, with their feet all extended out from the table, a servant could have easily come by and washed 
the stinky feet of the participants in the meal. Washed, washed their dirty feet. But on this occasion, no slave had been designated for this service. And so Jesus, seeing the need to serve, seeing the opportunity to serve, he gets up, he sets aside his outer garment like the lowest of slaves would have done. He takes a towel, wraps himself with a towel, and he begins to wash every dirty foot in the room. For Judas, this example of humility was unacceptable. He allowed Jesus to touch his feet, but he did not accept this for himself. He did not accept the transformation that Jesus was trying to make in his life. But for those disciples who let Jesus wash their soiled hearts as he washed their feet, they saw something that transformed their lives. After seeing God's goodness to them, after seeing this incredible special revelation of goodness, here they were, undeserving people, having their feet washed by the Lord who created everything, who is deserving of all praise, all honor, the highest exaltation. He lowers himself to the lowest place and serves them. They saw a special revelation of God's goodness, and as they received that, as they looked at that, as they understood that this was for them, that God was serving them, that he was changing them by his love, then they were transformed. They saw something new. Imagine for a moment Jesus kneeling before you, right now, knowing the shameful things that you've done, knowing the things that, the mistakes that you've made, knowing the ways in which we have been hurt, and so we are prone to hurting others in those same ways. Jesus knows all of that, and he comes to you, and he extends his hands, these hands that created everything, and he washes our feet. He has a powerful, powerful visual and it's not just something we make up. He washed every one of their feet, which means he washes every one of our feet. He doesn't restrict his service to anyone. He, he washes our feet. Imagine him coming to you and serving you, kneeling down before you, seeing the character flaws in your life and saying, I am able to wash those away. Jesus' example changes us. He knows how to heal our wounds. He knows how to soothe our fears. He knows how to wash away our resentments, how to change us from the inside out. It's his example that comes into our life, and he is the one that changes us. He is the one that does it. He doesn't go out and perform and say, oh, this is all great, now you try to follow. His example is what actually enters our life and changes us. I'd like to invite you just briefly to turn with me to John chapter 13, verse 15. Here, there's, there's a powerful insight. The, the example Jesus gives us is not something for us to merely look at as far away, something, something for us to merely try and copy. Yes, it's inspiring, but there's a, there's a radical change that takes place with his example because his example is not just for someone else. His example is with us. It's an experience with us. Just like Moses saw Jesus and experienced his glory on the mountain, unveiled face. So now as Jesus comes and ministers to us in our life through his spirit, we are changed. Verse 15 of John chapter 13 says, Jesus speaking, I have set you an example. What was his example? 
He touched their feet. He washed their hearts. He is the one that changed them. I have set you an example. They were changed by his example. And he says, because of that, you should do as I have done for you. It's because Jesus has changed us. This is why we can follow his example. Jesus stood up and served when no one else was serving. We live in a culture today where it's like, oh, I'll help, but I'm not going to lead. I'll assist, but I'm not going to take the leading role. It's too much. Jesus, when he serves us, we don't have to have any hesitation to stand up and say, something needs to change here. There needs to be some kind of service taking place. And because I have been changed, because I have been served by Christ, I am now qualified to stand up, though no one else may, and I'm going to serve. I'm going to make a difference. That power, that transformation happens when we have been changed by his example. to encourage this contemplation of Jesus and his glory. The Seventh-day Adventist church practices foot washing. And here we follow the example of Jesus who tells us to wash one another's feet. In a moment, we're going to dismiss to do this, and I, and I just want to give some instructions. This service is open to everyone who would like to follow the teaching of Jesus, who would like to, to contemplate this glorious demonstration of God's service and love to humanity by kneeling before someone and washing their feet, by allowing someone to wash our feet. So I encourage you to participate. And for those who would like to wash feet as a family, you can kind of see the, the little diagram here. You just exit through the door, go to your right, and then down the hallway in the fireside room. Families can wash each other's feet, husbands and wives, Parents and children, siblings, uh, can wash each other's feet there in the, in the fireside room. For those, who, um, would, those ladies who would like to serve a sister in Christ, you can exit, go to the right, and go to the junior room. Men who are serving brothers uh, in Christ, you'll exit, go to the right, and you can go to the primary room. Now, if you're not able to, to participate, if you choose not to, you can remain here. Uh, that's, that's certainly acceptable. And after the foot washing service, when we return, um, to, to participate in the communion service where we receive the, the emblems of Christ's body and blood, the bread and the grape juice. Um, I want to encourage you to, to just look at the rows, and every third row, it has a gold sash on it. If you could just leave that open, that will help us as we serve. Uh, so when you come back, if you could just leave every third row with the golden sash, um, if you could uh, just leave that open, that would be really helpful. Um, also, after we dismiss children, you have a special story, and Aunt Robin is going to share a story with you. You can come forward. Um, but first, we're going to pray, and then we'll dismiss to follow the teaching of Jesus and wash one another's feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. That's all we can say. We don't deserve you serving us. We don't deserve you changing our character, coming close, unfaithful though we have been. But we want to thank you for the special revelation of your goodness to us in Christ. I pray for each one who participates, each one who would like to and is not able to. I pray that you would transform our hearts, that we would serve like Christ, that our hearts would be touched, and that our characters would be shaped more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be dismissed. In a few moments, we'll come back to resume our communion service.